Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you all the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury, and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC, and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 18. This is going to be a really exciting episode where we get to talk to a world-renowned expert on a topic that's important to all of us, recovery. And like a lot of things in the medical and sporting fields, the research is extensive and the current approaches to recovery are fascinating and certainly not as simple as we once thought they were. So for anyone that thinks they need to recover from any sort of physical activity, you'd need to tune into this episode and listen to an expert talk about recovery. This topic is so fascinating and so in-depth that we didn't even get to talk about the modalities, things like ice and ice bars and massage. Before you even grab your recovery tools, you need to know the whens and the whys of recovery, and that's what we talk about today in this episode. But just before getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site, and that'll make sure you don't miss an episode. And it'd be great also if you have any comments or feedback to leave them on our site. But for now, let's get straight into episode 18. Recovery, what a fascinating topic it is and one of the most investigated topics in our sporting world at the moment. And once upon a time, recovery was mostly about what you didn't do. Basically, having a day off or a day away from training was considered our main recovery strategies. But now that we've got Google and social media on our side and and as a result of what seems like an unlimited amount of recovery gadgets and strategies we can use, it's it's not quite as simple as that. And for me, in the physical world, I think there's three main topics that uh, we look at in depth these days. Uh, one, Number one is load management and number two is tendon management and number three is recovery. And there's so many aspects of recovery to discuss um, and the obvious ones are the modalities that everybody uses and are so familiar with and have used over many years. Um, and it seems like so many people still, when they finished a training session or a competition, they're solely thinking about what they're going to use to help their recovery, be it an ice pack, jumping in a cold water bath, using a foam roller, compression gear, the list goes on and on. But what fascinates me now and what we want to get into today is a message that we need to get across to people, and that's that it's not only about how we recover and what we use but probably just as much, if not more, about when we should be recovering. So it really excites me today to have Dr. Shona Helson join us, who has been touted as the world's leading expert on athletic recovery, a topic that is massive for us all, as I said, from recreational through to elite and everyone in between. So as a bit of background, Dr. Helson was head recovery physiologist at the Australian Institute of Sport for just under 16 years, director of the Australian Olympic Committee Recovery Centre at the 2008, 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games. Dr. Helson is currently a professor at the Australian Catholic University in the School of Behavioural and Health Sciences, as well as an associate editor for the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance. 
She also provides consultancy services to the Australian Open Tennis Tournament and Nike as part of both the Nike Performance Council and Nike Sports Research Advisory Group. Dr. Helson also consults to a number of international professional sporting teams and defence organisations. So her research focuses heavily on recovery science and strategies and in particular over recent times uh, her topics of fatigue and sleep and there's over 130 scientific papers and research projects to her name and also many book chapters. So it really excites me to have a world-renowned expert in recovery join us today to help answer the hundreds of questions that I've got for her and I'm not quite sure whether to welcome you as Dr Helson, Professor Helson or just Shona but thanks for joining us. Thanks Anthony, looking forward to chatting but yeah Shona is uh, more than fine. Yeah fantastic, well look there's a long list of accolades there but um, amongst them which I didn't mention and we've just had International Women's Day last week and, and you were actually named a couple of years ago as one of Exercise and Sports Science Australia's three female leaders. Uh, that must have been pretty special to you. Yeah, yeah, it was. And in the last you know, few years, I've been doing more and more work with um, ESSA from a sports science perspective and really trying to promote the sports science aspect of, of ESSA as well as, you know, the, the you know the lack of women in our area it's it's sure. pretty it's pretty um obvious when you you know you go to a lot of professional teams and you go in and you do a presentation and you're only female in the room and i think yeah. there's um yeah so it was it was on and it was really nice and i think hopefully you know over time we can use things like that to try and promote um you know more females in elite sport yeah, absolutely. And look, along those lines, I'm actually interested in how you got to where you are. So what, what was your career pathway? Yeah, so I uh, started out, um, I did my uh, exercise science degree, essentially human movement, it was called back then and got, um, I was interested in, in fatigue. And in particular, I was interested in chronic fatigue syndrome. So I did uh, my honours research in that um, after my degree, and then moved into, um, started getting probably more interested in um, just general fatigue and exercise and started working in my PhD in the area of overtraining. So really looking at, you know, what happens when people do too much exercise or maybe under recovery which we sort of think of it now a little bit more as in you know people are under recovered rather than overtrained. so that was my PhD and then started straight at the Institute of Sport in 2002 and that was sort of a combination of research and servicing and PhD student supervision, um, education for athletes, etc. monitoring. Uh, and then in 2018, sort of transitioned across into academia, into the academic world, uh, where now I, I have no teaching. Uh, I'm, my role is really research and, and still, you know, community engagement. So trying to get out and still working with um, some professional teams um, and some consultancy uh, as well. So yeah, it's been a, um, it's been a bit of a, a, you know, a fun ride, but I think part of the you know the the good things about the the journey have been that you know recovery is something that's obviously to me recovery fatigue it's really interesting um and then you've got all the different areas within that so you know early on had a strong sort of research focus and interest in um general recovery strategies and water immersion um and then we did some compression work and now we're sort of moving a little bit more into the sleep world um so it's one of those things where you get to you, know, you get to mix things up it's not like you're doing the same thing every day and as the science evolves and your interest involves and what the athletes you know uh, take on board you can kind of you know your path can kind of evolve as well so it's been yeah, a nice okay. journey 
Yeah, and with almost 16 years with the AIS, did the weather get you? Like, why the change to ACU? <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast nice. and uh, yeah, moved to Cam- Well, actually, I did my PhD in Birmingham in the UK. So that was like one, that was the first big, oh my goodness, the weather. Then I went to Canberra. Um, and I mean, fortunately, the job was so amazing. The people I worked with, so amazing. So, you know, that kind of keeps you there despite the weather. Um, and then um, had the opportunity still while I was at um, the Institute of Sport to move back home to, to Queensland um, and now staying here, staying up here in Queensland for work with ACU. So, yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, from Canberra, you know, there's so many things people criticise Canberra about. It's easy to do, uh, but there's some good bits as well. And certainly, the job at the time was was pretty good yeah fantastic all right well let's get into it because i know we we've got a lot to get through and limited time so look i think the you know the thing that struck me about recovery over most recent times is that shift away from uh, not so much what we're using but but when we're recovering and, mm-hmm. and the term periodization and and just for everybody listening you know i think they're they're familiar with the term periodization in from the perspective of how it relates to training and, and even nutrition so for example mm-hmm. we tend to structure our fitness sessions around certain periods in our training or competitive season and and we know that as a very general rule you'll train harder or longer or faster in a pre-season to an in-season and nutrition you know whether carbohydrate loading is a term that that we use a lot these days but people will know that we used to or we do want to use certain foods according to certain stages in our uh, competition and training but periodization seems to have crept into the recovery topic um, as has adaptation so we want to get really deep into those but before we do I think we almost have to start with how do we define recovery and I know you ask this a lot and I presume it doesn't get much easier maybe but like (laughs) what is recovery and, and and how do we define it yeah and again it means different things to different people so when i first started at the ais one of my jobs was benchmarking so the idea was to go around and see what the rest of the world was doing and i'd go to other countries i'd go to america to pro sport and talk about recovery and they're like what what injury are you recovering from and i was like no just recovery from training from the stresses of being an athlete so you know recovery can mean completely you know working with defense you talk about recovery and that's a whole different you know angle um, when you're talking recovery so i think for me when i'm thinking about training from um, from training and competition recovery to me means getting the athlete back um, to balance to homeostasis um, so getting them back from a physical um, and a mental perspective so that they're able to do what they need to do um, in their either next training session or their next competitive event so you know obviously um, exercise is stress to the system um, physiologically and can be psychologically as well um, and recovery is sort of I guess removal of that stress removal of some of the f- fatigue um, and that's where when we start to talk about adaptation and periodization is sometimes you don't want to do that. You know, sometimes we don't want to remove all the, you know, the physio- physiological, you know, and psychological stresses. You know, there's, there's time and a place. Um, and so that's where that kind of aspect gets really interesting. So, uh, yeah, I just think about return back to balance, back to homeostasis, a simple, easy way to think about it. Yeah, great. And, and I've heard you, you know, through podcasts and seminars talk about the psychological aspect a lot and I find it quite ironical that many of the things that we'll talk about later like 
ice baths and, and being at the yeah. beach in winter and foam rolling and deep <laughs> massage, like they aren't exactly psychologically pleasant. But um, it's, it, it's interesting. Like, do you think we should be paying more attention to psychological strategies in our recovery as opposed to, I mean, those modalities I just spoke about are more physical, yeah. obviously, causing yeah. some psychological distress maybe, but there's not a lot of emphasis on the psychological side for a lot of people. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think it is neglected. And I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. And, you know, I'm probably uh, response partly to blame for some of it. I mean, as yep. physiologists, we live in the periphery, we live in muscle, um, you know, oh, of course, we are interested in the brain, we are interested in the cardiovascular system, etc. But physiology is, you know, heart and lungs and muscle, right? And so I think that's where our background is from a physiological perspective. And, you know, now, of course, we know how important the brain is for pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when you start to look at some of these really foundational and fundamental recovery strategies, like sleep, put sleep as your best recovery strategy. I mean, that's primarily a brain activity. Um, so, and also you add to that, um, it, to this world, you know, increasing demands, especially when you're talking elite athletes, you're talking, sponsorship you're talking social media you're talking you know these some of these athletes are scheduled to within an inch of their lives and you know um we see this thing um that we talk about in in sleep and it's it's we sort of refer to it like as you know revenge staying awake it's like well my whole life is planned and so the t as soon as i get to bed it's my time for me yeah. and so people then just stay up really late so yeah and, and so i think and we also the other aspect of that is now we understand this idea of mental fatigue and that's getting a lot of interest in research so just how being mentally tired um, can in, have um, implications for your ability to train or perform so i think we've sort of moved from this real physiology based perspective around recovery now to really trying to encompass you know the whole the whole body the whole the whole human okay and and we'll get a bit more into that as we go but if we talk a little bit more specifically about periodization and adaptation as i said a, a lot of people uh, in sport are, are familiar with periodization they're mm -hmm. also familiar with adaptation which you know basically we know that if we train harder or train faster or train longer or jump higher for long enough our body's going to hopefully adapt and get better as a result mm -hmm. but can you sort of tell us how adaptation has come into the recovery mm. concept and, and and when we might not want to recover to or might not want to recover as much as we think we might to allow mm. adaptation yeah, and it's such an interesting area and it's it's really fascinating because it's where the little nuances come in and, you know, you think about, um, you know, recovery in the old days, everyone would do a nice bath after every session and, you know, now we're starting because all of a sudden we went from, you know, no pain, no gain and then we're like, okay, maybe that's not correct. We know that people need some rest and recovery. So then we started having this real focus on recovery and it yeah. got really trendy and cool and everyone was, you know, everyone was recovering after everything. And now we've sort of, you know, refining things similar to the nutrition world where, you know, carbohydrate is king and protein is king and all, okay, now there's a time and a place for everything. So I think from a recovery perspective, you know, we all sort of knew that, you know, it's fatigue, inflammation, damage, soreness, you know, these things are a natural consequence of exercise and you need them. It helps 
you know, you need to repair and regenerate to adapt and to get to that next level. Um, and so the idea was kind of people started thinking, well, if you're recovering, maybe you're not doing that. Maybe you're not um, going to get the adaptation because we need these inflammatory processes. We need this fatigue, you know, to, to drive adaptation. Uh, and then, so I think what's happened as a consequence of that question is that we're sort of moving now towards, okay, how do we program and prescribe and periodize recovery so that one, we don't have, you know, tired athletes and sore athletes when they don't need to be, um, when we want them to be at their best. Um, and, and I think the other thing always to remember though is, people want a black and white answer. And as I yeah. said, there's lots of nuances in there. And I think this is great to have these conversations because the more you know about the different aspects of what when a recovery is doing and when you should do it, when you shouldn't do it, the more you can um, have these, have the information to make these decisions, decisions yourself. Um, and so some of the things that I obviously think about is, you know, recovery is not just recovering for, for what you've just done, it's preparing for what you've got to do. Um, and so if you're, and I use two really different examples to try and, you know, make, make the picture clear, you might be a swimmer who has one or two races a year that's important. So you're spending most of your life training, very small amount of your life tapering. Um, yeah. You've also got a, you're doing a sport where you're supported in water. There's not a lot of eccentric damage. There's no contact, you know, the soreness and damage you're probably going to get is when you're in the gym. It's a whole different world to if you're um, an AFL football player or even worse, a rugby union player in the super rugby when they were traveling, you know, every week you're playing, every week you're traveling, you're getting beaten up, you've got lots of eccentrics, you're playing at night. So, you know, where every week counts. So your demand for recovery for a sport like swimming is completely different to your demand for recovery for a rugby union player who's basically getting beaten, beaten up every time they play. And so again, when we talk about people wanting a black and white answer, oh, ice baths are bad. You know, that's the latest thing. Ice baths yeah. are bad. A couple of papers come out and it's like, well, no, they're not. They have a time, they have a place. And when you understand the sport and the training and the periodization, you can work out when ice baths are good and when they might be bad. Okay, and look, I find it really interesting that um, I think we're really changing away from um, a recovery at all costs mentality because, it, again, it's quite, when you think about it, that the when we're trying to get better, we're actually training ourselves and almost wanting and almost needing that bit of soreness in order to mm. get better but then we're trying to dampen the soreness which is what's getting us better so it's it's quite yeah, contradictory yeah. in so many ways yeah yeah and that's that's true and then but on the you know the small caveat to that is you know even and you would know this you know you're an expert in physio so you know when you talk about icing and icing injuries for example you never an ice icing is never you know if you ice for i don't know 20 minutes yep. you're never going to take away all the inflammation never going to take away all the soreness you know what i mean so this yes. idea that you know recovery is going to block everything uh no it probably won't <laughs> we don't think it will it might block some things in some instances um but it's not a complete you know black and white it, okay you do an ice bath you're going to blunt, blunt every single inflammatory process that you have um, yeah okay and with like when i think about recovery people tend to want to recover from fatigue and soreness would be the mm -hmm. two things that, that would most affect people yeah can we differentiate between those two? Like, should we? Should we want to recover from one and not the other? 
Yeah, now that's a good question. I haven't been asked. Um, yeah, look, and I think because, and this is a generalisation, but often, um, you know, what cause? So, say you're um, a cyclist and you've got a lot of fatigue, um, and some of that fatigue might be metabolic fatigue. Obviously, you know, it's not mechanical fatigue as much as say if you're in the gym and you're doing lots of sort of eccentrics. Um, and so, sort of the idea maybe is that you know, fatigue is something that is potentially recoverable from a little bit quicker, you know, you know, with soreness and damage that that process is going to continue over time. Um, and that depending on, so for me, if I go to the gym and I do a really hard session and I'm really sore, um, for me, I don't really care. I don't think recovery for me is that important. You know, yeah. I'm probably going to turn up to the gym two days later and, you know, I'm not competing, I'm not performing, you know, for me, being elite is <clears throat> very, very, very far from the conversation. Yeah. Um, so I don't really care about recovery. I can be sore. That's all good. That's part of the process. But if I was an elite football player and I'm very sore and I have to play three days later, I'm going to want to get rid of some of that soreness because I want to be as good as I can be. Um, so I think there's some sort of different, uh, you know, that obviously the soreness process can continue on for longer periods of time. Um, fatigue, we know, is obviously really important for that, um, you know, for, for driving the adaptation and the benefits and getting used to, to tolerating the exercise. So, And I think, you know, recovery strategies might be very different for different types of fatigue. So, you know, you're cycling and you've got a more metabolic fatigue, you probably need to really focus on your nutrition. Um, if you're a football player um, and um, you're, you know, you're sore and, you're, and you've got different, you know, you might be acutely injured, obviously, then your focus is on reducing some soreness and repair uh, and obviously nutrition as well. Um, but you might take slightly di a different stance from, from both of those. And really, I think it comes down to what are you preparing for um, and what are you trying to recover from? Yeah, sure. And look, I think again, you know, it's probably up to us as physios a lot too to to educate people that fatigue and soreness aren't necessarily a bad thing. Like, you know, we have to, sometimes we want them and sometimes we don't have to do everything in our toolkit or pull everything out yeah. to get rid of them. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, again, back to the swimmers example. I mean, you know, when I used to work quite a bit with the swimmers and there's only a couple of times a year they actually felt great. You know, yeah, right. they're, they're tired all the time. Yeah. And if you're not tired, are you training enough? Yeah. You know, you kind of, we kind of need that. It's, you know, you obviously don't want it to tip over the edge and to get into a state where you can't train, you know, properly for long periods of time. Like your recovery takes a long time from training. You know, that's, that's not ideal, but people think, you know, that I might come in and want to talk to people about recovery or give them advice. And they think, Oh, you want athletes to be fresh all the time. I'm like, no, I don't. I just want them to be able to do what they need to do. Um, to the best of their ability. Um, and you've given a couple of examples of, of the differences that uh, different athletes might use. What about somebody just as simple as being in the gym, doing strength mm. training and getting soreness from just strength training? And if strength is your main aim, how yep. does that change if it does to the person that's on the bike or in the pool or running? Yeah, so in terms of, um, you know, recovery strategies that you, um, that you might choose, so for example, we would probably, um, if, and again, this is if you want to recover yeah. or you need to recover, like if you're like me, you don't want to or need to. <laughs> I mean, obviously you want your nutrition and sleep and all those things, but I don't need to go to the next level and jump in an ice bath, I don't think. It might, it might reduce some of my soreness, probably would. 
Um, but in terms of um, being an elite athlete, that's probably something that you might want to do. Um, but when you look at the research, and this is where this whole um, debate has come about around ice baths being good or bad. And, and so, you know, we've got one side of the story, which is, which we've been just talking about, that adaptation is important and inflammation and damage and soreness, you know, we don't want to blunt any of that. So maybe recovery is not great. And then on the other side of the story, you have, well, okay, if you're a bit less sore, a bit less tired, you can train more, you can train harder, you feel better, life's better, um, then maybe over a you know, Olympic cycle or a year or two, then that's extra training and going to be beneficial. So we've, we've really got these two sides to the story. And what's happened from the research perspective, because um, people want to answer these questions, um, and we've done one study in this area, we've got another one coming out soon, but typically what happens is people use untrained individuals because they can control what they do. So first of all, we don't even know if it's relevant to the athletes that we work with. Mm. But the one thing that has come up that's kind of consistent is that ice baths after resistance training may dampen some of the signaling repair and, and muscle building pathways. So if I was to come in and be really conservative and say, I want to be really careful, I've got this super elite athlete, there's a little bit of evidence, even if it's in untrained, I might just take away doing ice baths after a resistance training session, a hard weight training session. I could keep it after other sessions, or I might look at other recovery strategies after weight training sessions. But that's the one thing that's kind of been focused on is ice baths after weight training sessions. Yeah, sure. And I think, look, there was a great study, um, which I know you're familiar with, which again shows us this fine balance. And, and the study was on a group of, of track and field athletes over a six months, so a long preparation period. And there are a couple of stats that really stood out that I found really interesting. Um, number one, that the majority of new injuries occurred within the first month of the training. So maybe spikes in load. Um, most of the illnesses occurred within the, the last two months before the event. So, you know, tiredness, mm -hmm. fatigue, yep. stress. Yep. But the one that really stood out to me was that if athletes, if these athletes participated in 80% or more of their training, it increased their performance goals sevenfold, which is mm -hmm. astounding. And again, it's that, that balance, as you say, between thinking, well, if we're in a long pre-season, we might want adaptation, but there's still that need to have people available for as many sessions as possible. So recovery is definitely still going to come into it somewhere just to get people up session after session. Yeah, and that's a, a, such a great um, thing to raise now and a great point and it's, you know, great research to, to get you to think because um, if being available for training sessions is where it's at. You know, yeah. you can't win major events if you have, generally speaking, if you have big blocks of time away from training because either you're injured or you're, or you're ill. So, you know, people wanting these little 0.005%, you know, I'm going to try this random cryotherapy chamber with a, you know, with a bit of infrared after it and a bit of muscle stimulation. In and you're like, well, what, what you really want to be doing is sleeping, eating and training right. We don't, a lot of athletes don't get this foundation, this base right that allows them the consistency of training to get them the ultimate goal. So, yeah, I think there's a big trend and, and, you know, we have social media, we have all these devices, we have all these things that we can access now. And so I think what people want to do is the shiny, fancy thing that, you know, that they think is going to be simple and easy to do and quick, 
uh, without putting the hard work into let's just get the basic foundational things right to keep us on the court, on the pitch, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was quite to think that, um, you know, a sevenfold increase is, is really, it's quite a lot of well, not pressure, but means we just got to get people out there as much as we can. So um, let's move on to, and you've touched on it, overtraining and under recovery. Mm. Um, mm. I've heard you say before that it's actually rare to overtrain. Mm. It will often mm. have people come into the clinic and say, oh, I'm here and I'm sore or I'm injured because I've overtrained. Trained. So you know, can you overtrain and who's most likely to? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting area because, you know, and I, in my research for my PhD, I really looked at overreaching rather than overtraining because you can't obviously get ethical approval to overtrain someone. <laughs> and then the question is, are you really overtraining someone? So there's a couple of factors to that. There's one, are you actually just under-recovering? I think in my time at the Institute, I probably only saw two or three what you would call years. yeah what you would call as overtrained athletes i saw fatigued athletes i saw overreached athletes but overtrained where you're thinking this is potentially career ending um and that they never get back to where they previously were only a couple and oh, wow. they were all i would say the consistent theme was stress and not sleeping or shift work one was a couple were actually shift workers okay. um trying to be elite athletes and doing shift work so yeah. For them, it was more around trying to do what they would normally do and push super hard in training and just not getting the recovery. Um, the other interesting thing you say there about people coming to your clinic saying you're injured, they're injured and they're overtrained. What they've probably, what maybe they've done too much training um, or they haven't recovered enough. But the, the example I always use is when I did my PhD, I was doing research on overreaching in cyclists and another um, researcher at the same time was doing her PhD on runners. And I finished all my studies with all my participants um, cycling. You know, they got tired, they got grumpy, they got miserable. We saw mood changes, but they came back every day. She lost half her subject pool every study because they got injured. Right. And so whether or not what we're seeing in sports like running, where you obviously have the impact with the ground and the contact, that the, it's the body's way of saying, I'm, I've just had enough. Like, you can't keep doing this to me. I'm just going to break first. So they don't often get, often we, we, well, we think in runners that they don't get some of these classic hormone changes and, you know, the, the cardiac change, the really bad changes that can occur with overtraining because they tend to break first. Sure. Um, whereas if you're a swimmer or a cyclist, you can just push yourself into a massive hole um, before you might, and get those classic overtraining, you know, hormonal changes, et cetera, um, before you actually get injured. So most people who feel they overtrain, do you think that they need to stop thinking that it's a fault in their training and just more a fault in their recovery? I actually think that's a good way of looking at it because there's, and I've seen this happen before, what happens is they get, people get really tired um, and they think they're, you know, they, they confuse overtraining. So obviously what happens is they're usually not performing very well, whether they're training or racing, they're not performing well. And sometimes they think, well, I'm not doing enough. Um, and so then they actually do more training because, you know, they might compare themselves to someone else. And, and you know, you see this a lot with, you know, triathletes and endurance, you know, especially the endurance triathletes and, you know, compare themselves to what other people are doing and think, well, I'm just not doing enough. That's why I'm not racing well. Um, whereas I think if you take the angle of I probably need to recover a bit better 
um, that might help, um, you know, some of that, some of that mindset. And, you know, it's like, you know, people always think people get scared of days off. Um, and generally speaking, even the best athletes in the world have at least one day off a, yeah. a week. Um, and you can, your chances of having a performance improvement, in my opinion, if you're tired, your chances of having a performance improvement are significantly greater if you take a day off than if you do more. Um, but people just get scared of taking days off because they think they're going to lose fitness. It's like, no, a day off will help you, you lose fatigue. Fatigue dissipates quickly. Fitness um, takes a lot longer to dissipate. So having a day or two off here and there, people shouldn't be super concerned. I mean, you don't want to take months off, right? You'll detrain. Yeah. Um, but you... But don't be scared of having a day or two and just getting recovered, feeling better so that you're not going to drive yourself into a really bad hole. And the only other thing that I will say is for the general population, um, so you, typically elite athletes usually don't have jobs outside of their trade, you know, their sport is their job. Um, and so they might not have the different pressures and stress and time constraints that um, the general public might have like if you've got to work nine to five and you want to be you want to do you know a long distance triathlon you've probably got to train at ridiculous times of the day um so we th there is it's slightly different being an elite athlete where your world is training um versus other people where your world is training plus work and look you, you mentioned a couple of it but i was thinking when i was thinking about the classic uh, patient that will come to me and say they're overtrained. There, there's, mm. I came up with one of three things. They've either had a poor session, yep. uh, so they train harder to try yep. and make up for it. Yep. Um, the interesting one is that they think we get people that come in that are starting sports and, and they've done a bit of training and they've had a bit of success. And it's, so it sort of mm. makes sense that, well, if I do more, I will have more success. Better. So they train harder. And yep. then the last one, as I said, is failure. People come in and they failed in their goals, so they train mm. harder. So mm. it's a real education thing, again, to get across to people that if your performance is not... Uh, where it wants to be it's it's not so much a training issue as you said it's really hard to get through to these people I'm sure it's worse mm. at the elite end but mm. even our recreational end of the spectrum it's really hard to say to them hey actually doing less and having a day off might actually help you more than Better. making up a session yeah yeah it's it, yeah perfect and that's that's the that's the message that we need to get across and I think the other message is, you know, people, overtraining is such an easy term to use. People sort of confuse training a bit more than I should and classic overtraining syndrome where you're in a real mess. You know, people use the term interchangeably. It's like, I am overtraining and I am overtrained. It's like, no, no, no. Like, you know, if, if you, to me, the term overtraining refers to, I think of as the overtraining syndrome, you know, this classic career ending, exhaustive, you know, in a hole, doing too much training um, or doing more training and not enough recovery is, is not to me, you know, overtraining. But the other thing that I think we also see with some people and genuinely, and you may see them in their clinic, they're in a, a real fatigue hole and they're people who exercise a lot. And I think what doesn't happen enough is I don't think people explore the medical aspects enough. So some of my initial thoughts was that look maybe overtraining doesn't really exist it's just that you've got a medical you've got something underlying that you haven't addressed um, whether that's a virus you know we see a lot of post-viral issues in athletes that, that that looks like overtraining 
Um, and so making sure that if people are really bad, like, and you think, okay, this is really not great, make sure that they're, you know, people, I think the number one complaint of people going to the GP is I feel tired. Um, and so if you're someone who is, you know, really in that bad place to go to your medical person or sports medicine physician, if you can, and get everything checked out, because there could be something medical underlying that's causing that fatigue. But you think because you're an exerciser um, and you train a lot, that it's about the training. It may not be about the training. And look, a, a point you make there, which I love too, is I, and again, it probably reflects back to our general demographic, is that I think people significantly underestimate the effect that a work family sport yeah. schedule has on them. And, you know, people will come in and talk about a training session, but you speak to them about their day and you think, well, no wonder you've had wonder. a bad session. And, and it's yeah. just something that people don't, they'll add up, they'll tell you to the metre how many kilometres they've run or mm. weights they've lifted. But, you know, taking into account, well, overnight, we'll talk about sleep in a sec, but, you know, mm. family and kids and work, it's, it's just an yeah. enormous, yeah, life. It's an enormous burden on their body before they even go for their yeah. run. Yeah. And sometimes when I've tried to get that message across to people, you know, I, I sort of say, you know, imagine yourself, you're driving to work and you're really late. It's a really important meeting. You're stuck in traffic. You know, I know for me, I hate that. I'm not good at being late. Yeah. And so for me, I'm like, okay, what would my physiological response be? I'd probably have cortisol being released. I'd probably have an elevated heart rate. I've had sweaty palms. I'd be stressed because I don't like to be late and I want to get there. Now, when you look at what happens during exercise, it's not much different. The, the extent might be greater. You might have a higher heart rate and higher cortisol release, um, but you're still having a physiological response to stress. And just because you're not exercising doesn't mean your body's not undergoing some physiological changes. Yeah. So if you've got the two and you've got massive stress, you're not sleeping and you're trying to train, you're not giving your body any rest, yeah. um, which is where you can get into problems. Let's take a short break from recovery and tell you a little bit more about Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre, who bring you the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast. SSPC has been established for 24 years, and with two great clinics in East Bentley and Mentone, SSPC bring you everything you need to keep yourself in top shape, whether it's for your sport, your chronic health, your pain, post-operative, or just to be your best in life. Our clinics have a number of really experienced physiotherapists, all with special interest areas that help cover any injury or condition that you might need assessed. And working alongside our physios are podiatrists, massage and myotherapists, Dietitians, meaning you can access a multidisciplinary team care approach to your conditions and health. SSPC also runs a busy schedule of classes including Pilates, GLAD Strength for Osteoarthritis, Strength and Conditioning classes and ACL Rehabilitation. Take a look at all of our services and skills by typing in www.sspc.com com.au into your favourite search browser. But for now, let's get back to episode 18 with Shona Helson and keep talking recovery. And look, 
I wonder whether this is the million dollar question of recovery sort of, and that is how do we measure it? Like if something is so important, we sort of have to have some measuring yardstick. We can't just say, hey, it's important, but but how, how do we measure recovery? Yeah. There's so many things out there. Yeah, I know. And look, there's simple there's ways that I think are most effective. I, I do think asking some simple questions, um, you know, you don't have to. So again, going back to my overtraining studies, I measured everything that I could measure under the sun in right. these athletes. Like we did stable isotope infusion to look at metabolism and like every hormone I could measure sleep lab. Like I spent a lot of university money and the best <laughs> predictor of how these people were going to perform, not just how their performance was going to decrease, but how it was going to bounce back was their mood. So everything else I mentioned, you know, there was some small relationships, but every time mood was it. So asking people if they're honest, how do you feel? Are you sore? Are you stressed? Are you sleeping? Are you motivated? You know, some five simple questions, you know, rate where you are can be, you know, if they're honest, that can be really important. Um, you know, people get into heart rate and heart rate variability and, you know, there's so many different things, you know, you can measure your warm up and look at your heart rate during a warm up. Look, there's lots of stuff, but to me, and it's going to be different for each sport because sometimes that's relevant. Sometimes it's not, but the way I think about whether someone's recovered or not is how you respond or how you back up or how you recover from something standard. So if you're the sort of person and a lot of training and this, you do a 10 K on a Wednesday. Okay. If you're, you know, on Thursday, you know, this is how you normally feel. If you feel different to that, then you may, in terms of a negative, you know, you may not have um, recovered as, as you should have. But if you were like from a scientific perspective, the only way that I can really measure it is to get someone to do a maximal effort. That's classically in performance, but in performance research, you know, you tire someone out, you give them a recovery strategy and you say, go as hard as you can. Now we can't do that in the real world to measure if someone's recovered, that's why it's so hard. So you've got to ask them questions or you monitor their physiology response to something submaximal. Um, but typically I find ask how you feel and for, you know, for, for your clients or for people that are listening who may not be at the elite level, just pay attention to how you normally feel to standard, um, you know, standard sessions or as close to standard as you can get. Um, because one of the things that we look at is uh, a decoupling. So, you know, and, and if you're someone that likes heart rate, you know, you can do a one hour ride at 150 beats a minute and that can feel great or that can feel very ordinary. Um, and, and you can do a max effort and you can feel great or you can feel really bad. So how you feel is a really important thing for people to tap into um, and just be, you know, have some insight, really reflect and think about what's normal for you and, and how you're responding. Yeah, okay. There might be a few people taking off their $450 garments at the moment and <laughs> a bit of paper to write a few questions down. But, you know, it's interesting along those lines too is that I find that, the, that we can we can get so much data that reality says we don't know what it means and what to do about it anyway. Mm. You just get this, this significant amount of stuff that comes to us through watches and the rest of it, mm. but you've still got to know what it means and, and what to do. So again, I, I, I love that simple bit of paper, couple of questions, mood. And, and it's so interesting that after all that money you spent <laughs> that it came down to a bit of paper with 
four or five questions. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, and and look, and you know, I know you said we'll talk talk about sleep, but sleep monitors are the classic. Yeah. Like, if something's not giving you feedback, and most devices don't, they don't say whether it's you know, they might give you an indication it's good or bad, but they don't tell you what to do about it. Yeah. So to me, the classic um, analogy for a sleep watch is it's like a set of scales. A set of scales isn't going to help you completely lose weight, right? It might give you some guidance. Like it might say you're up or down or what you're doing is good or bad, but it's not a weight loss strategy. It's not like seeing a dietitian. It's not giving you feedback on what you need to do. Oh, you're heavier today. Okay, so what? Does that one day mean anything? Um, and so sometimes there are people that love the numbers and it's motivating for them. And I have uh, recently did some feedback with a, uh, an elite female soccer player and she loves wearing a sleep watch because she said, I feel like you're watching me and I am on it. She said, I get the best sleep ever with that watch because I do all the right things. And then you'll have other people that are like, oh, no, no, I just, it freaks me out. I, I see these numbers and I'm not, I'm not getting enough sleep and um, they get perfectionist about it. And one day of bad sleep thinks they've ruined their whole life. Um, and I'm always like, no, 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 it's about habits. It's about what you do the majority of the time. You know, one training session doesn't make you amazing. One bad training session doesn't make you terrible. Same with sleep odd good night, odd bad night, but people can really mess themselves up with the numbers and some people it doesn't, but if you're someone who it doesn't mess you up, go for it. If it messes you up, forget about it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, whilst we're on sleep, which I know is your research baby, mm -hmm. um, we talk, I was reading um, Christy Ashwanden's book, Good to Go, oh, yeah. which is quite good, and you're, yeah. you're, um, she draws on you quite a few times in that book, but she made a comment that um, sleep is hands down the most powerful recovery tool known to science, and mm. that's pretty much just your study all over, isn't it? That's, that's mm -hmm. what you found, and sleep is critical yeah look i think it is i think one of the things is that what we understand now about the importance of sleep it's just it is so profound it's profound across so many different areas and so you know and now the research we know what sleep deprivation does it's bad for you know it's increased risk of mental illness is you know diabetes cardiovascular disease like you name it you get bad sleep for a long period of time and your health implications are you know it, it's it's poor um and so and as i said our experience with athletes the really overtrained ones the ones in a really bad place haven't slept well um and so and the other angle to that is, you know, you might wear compression garments for an hour or you might hop in an ice bath for 15 minutes. We're talking sleep, eight, nine hours should be, you know, where you've got hormonal release, where you've got muscle repair and brain repair and rejuvenation. It's like nine hours of this, you know, yeah. amazing thing. There's a Matthew Walker's book um, about sleep. He says, you know, if we weren't meant to sleep a third of our lives, Mother Nature made a very big mistake. Yeah. Um, and the problem is we don't sleep a third of our lives anymore. Everything else gets more important. Yeah. And how many, uh, you know, it's interesting talking about overtraining, but if we talk about sleep deprivation, mm. how many athletes do you see are truly sleep deprived? Like what's the definition mm. of sleep deprivation and <laughs> who just isn't getting enough sleep? Yeah. Well, we, there's not really a good, um, a good definition. And part of it is because everyone's sleep need is different. 
Some people can get by with six or seven. Some people need eight, nine or 10. So, you know, if you're getting seven and you need 10, you're sleep deprived. But if you're getting seven and you need six, you're doing okay. So um, in terms of what we see though, is we see that our, in our athletes, they're getting around six and a half to seven hours um, consistently. That's average data is kind of what we see. Um, we just published a study, it's just about to come out actually, where we monitored athletes sleep with sleep watches, but we asked them before we started that, how much sleep do you need to feel good? And pretty much all of them said about nine hours and they all got about seven and a half. So they're 90 minutes less than what they think they actually need. Um, so, but some of the athletes that sleep the worst are the ones that have really early morning starts. Early morning training starts are the worst thing for sleep um, because you, it doesn't protect sleep. It just means that you've got to get up earlier than you'd probably like to. And either you can't go to bed early enough because you've got work or training or life, then you can't go to bed to get enough sleep at the right time. Um, or biologically, you're just not ready. You know, you're not, you're not sleepy. You can't go to bed at seven o'clock at night because you've got to get up at 4.30 in the morning. So um, early morning starts. So sports like swimming, rowing, triathlon, you know, we do see a number of those um, athletes with some sleep concerns because they're just not getting the duration. Um, and we also see some sleep concerns in sports like the NBA, um, in um, football players that play once, twice or three times a week where they're playing at night and their schedule's all over the place. So, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're an NBA player, you're almost like a shift worker. Yeah, Your body right. clock is all over the shop. Yeah, and I want to go back to measuring then. So as you said, yep. like eight hours for me can be totally different to eight hours to you. So is subjective feeling of how I've slept a good enough measure for your average person to, you know, so we can get caught up on numbers and the sleep mm. watches. And, and unless we're in a lab, we're not going to get an accurate assessment. No. So how does our average person get up and assess what sleep they've had? Yeah, I think um, the, some of the challenges with subjective um, reports about sleep is they can be a little bit inaccurate, especially if you take a long time to fall asleep or you wake up throughout the night. They're the things you kind of remember. And so you might say your whole sleep was atrocious when really it wasn't that bad. You just took a little bit longer to fall asleep. So I, my approach, if I, could, if I could monitor someone and I didn't have a device, like I didn't have a good scientific advice, I'd get them to do two things. I'd get them to record for two weeks, um, bedtime and wake time, because what you want to see, that'll give you duration, um, but it'll also give you consistency. Are they going to bed at eight o'clock one night, 2 a.m. the next? Because consistency of bed and wake time is super important. So if they recorded for um, bed and wake time for two weeks, that gives me some good information. And then for them, what I get people to think of is how do you feel when you wake up in the morning within, you know, you should feel pretty good within an hour of waking up. So if you wake up at seven and you still feel like, Oh my God, nine 30 in the morning, you need five coffees still to get through yeah. the day. You probably haven't had the greatest night of sleep. And if you get to, and how do you get through the day? Um, so are you, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon, you are still good. You're working away. You've got energy. You've probably had a reasonable night's sleep. If you are someone who could fall asleep at the traffic lights at four o'clock or five o'clock in the afternoon, you're probably sleep deprived. Um, and the only other thing that I'd add to that is get, getting people to see how quickly they fall asleep. 
So if you, when we do sleep monitoring with athletes, we give the reports back and athletes say, oh, it only took me two minutes to fall asleep. I'm the winner. Everyone else took longer. I'm like, you're actually not the winner. Um, that probably means you are really sleep deprived because the second you go to bed, you're out. And that's probably a sign that you could go to bed half an hour earlier, maybe an hour earlier, and you'd probably, probably sleep okay. So how long it takes to fall asleep, how you feel when you wake up in the morning and how you get through the day um, are going to be pretty good as well as just yeah. how you feel you've slept, but they're going to be pretty good indicators to think back and have some insight and reflection on what you're doing. Yeah, okay. And this is a bit of a strange question, but it came up as I was reading things and talking about adaptation and thinking, can we or should we adapt to a little bit less sleep? Like, is that possible? And I know what you're going to say, but yeah, uh, yeah. we can adapt to so many other things. Can someone adapt to a little bit less sleep? sleep? It seems like, and I think everyone's experienced this, like you go through phases where you get really little sleep and you cope and you cope and you go, man, I could do this. Like, yeah. So I, I just worked down at the tennis stand at the Australian Open for a few weeks. And let's just say, I don't sleep much during that time. It's pretty busy. And this one was kind of stressful. Um, and so you don't get a lot of sleep and you go, you get towards the end. You're like, I'm nailing this. Yeah. And then at some point you go, oh, no, I'm not. And you just crash. And you either get sick which happens, people get sick, um, or they lose their motivation, or they lose their productivity, or they make more mistakes, they make, they have accidents, you know. And so what we really understand now about sleep is, is it's fairly strongly genetic. There's, there's a, a pretty powerful, um, powerful genes behind how we sleep. And so it's pretty hard to fight that. Um, and so you might be able to cope for certain periods of time, um, but to really shift, you know, people ask, can I be all of a sudden become a morning person? I'm like, oh, you probably can't. You might be able to do, cope for short periods of time, but at some point there'll be a crash. So the biggest disruptors to our sleep, mm. yeah. social media, electronics, TVs, yep. um, caffeine, alcohol. Yep. Well, yep. What, what, are you, <laughs> what are you spending most of your time saying to people? What's the most common mistake? Yeah, and I probably shouldn't say this out loud because then I'll be out of consultancy work. But <laughs> the things that I see, and I find myself repeating it, is people, one, need to go to bed earlier. Two, they need to take the phones out of their bedrooms or shut them down earlier. And three, they need to be careful with their caffeine. So what happens is we do this sleep monitoring. We hand out a research grade sleep watch and a diary. I can look at someone's diary and I think I probably don't even need to look at your watch. We ask them the caffeine intake. We ask them their screen use. I can see bed and wake time. And I've got a pretty good idea of what their sleep's actually going to be like. If I see a report that's got almost no caffeine use or just one in the morning, no screen time, um, bedtimes at around, you know, what, depending on what time they have to wake up, you know, good bedtime. I'm like, I bet your sleep's good. And generally speaking, it is. Um, one thing I will say, though, is I... With COVID, um, one of the things that, because um, we can't do face-to-face -face research, I've kind of gone through and started digging up all the sleep data we've ever collected in the world <laughs> and we started analysing it and trying to really dig into it, really mine that data and see what's there. And interestingly, the things that are, com two things are coming out, consistency. So this is athlete data, but consistency of bed and wake time, which we always say, but we didn't really have proof of, yeah. and early bedtimes. They're the two. Wake times... Not so much, but early, early-ish bedtimes, 
um, and consistent bed and wake times is, is what we're seeing that's linked to the quality of people's um, people sleep. Yeah, okay, that's great. And look, I think I go back to, and again, what I see is these people that are busy in their life and go to bed and that's their time to be them and do their social media mm. and have everything mm -hmm. on. And I think it's a great analogy for people. You know, if I say to one of my patients, look, I want you to go for a run and I want you to, at the end of your, your, your day and I want you to run yourself up to bed and take your runners off and go to sleep, they'd think you're mad. But <laughs> the stimulation of light and electronics and TV and... Yeah. and it, that's what they're doing is they've got this massive awakening or stimulation of mm. neurons in the brain and what they do yep. is flick everything off and expect to go to sleep and it, it's it's just mm. so hard yeah and no it's it's so true and changing people's behavior is really hard like especially a younger athlete you know i'm not really a social media user much and you know not, i'm good with twitter and that's about it but you know i I see the younger generation and how attached they are and how important social media is. And so I can't just come in and say, don't do it. I have to educate them why it's bad and give them alternatives. Like, you know, put the, put the night shift mode on your phone. So you orange your screen out a bit more. So the light's not as blue. Can you put your phone down half an hour beforehand? Um, can you set a bedtime alarm? Like, cause telling them, you know, if I walk in and say, don't have your phone in your room, I've lost them instantaneously yeah. so yeah. it's trying to find out what's you know obviously going to going to work for them but changing behaviors especially around sleep because we've all slept from day one it's not like you're an athlete and oh i've just started training for the last two yeah. years You've been, everyone's been doing it forever and a day and they have what they think works for them or you know or what's normal for them and it may not be that normal yeah, yeah. and setting a bedtime alarm it's something that um most people wouldn't have thought of but um look i i know we've got to let you go yeah. and um so we we can talk about uh modalities another time one mm -hmm. in a uh, two minutes mm. um napping where does yeah. napping fit into the sleep deprived yep. person to the sleep deprived person it's excellent to the non-sleep deprived person it may not be that good so um, people ask me questions around, oh, how do I hack my sleep? I'm like, you can't hack your sleep, sorry. Yeah. Um, you can hack your day to make your sleep better, but you can't hack your sleep. Um, and so if you're sleep deprived, the only way to get over sleep deprivation is sleep. Caffeine will help you for a short period of time, but the only way to get over sleep deprivation is sleep. So if you're, if you're sleep deprived, napping is great if you're not sleep deprived and you're sleeping because you're bored or maybe you sort of think you should get a bit extra what can happen is that can have detrimental effects on your nighttime sleep so your quality of your nighttime sleep can be impaired if you nap during the day and you don't really need it so early naps so you know before three o'clock you know relatively short you know under an hour except if you really need it if you're really sleep deprived you probably need more than that um, but yes, if you're sleep deprived, napping is absolutely your friend to get through. Um, but if you're not, it may not be your, your best strategy. Yeah, that's great. And look, just to finish it, it will uh, probably interest you. I sent out a little questionnaire to a group of our runners that we have and got about 30 responses overnight about what their favourite uh, recovery Ooh. modality is. 
um, yeah. and <laughs> massage spiky ball foam roller came up. Well, we can yep. talk about that another time, but only two people mentioned sleep and sleep. they were both physios. So um, <laughs> they're well educated. That's right. So, <laughs> look, I think overall we've just got it. You know, it's 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 like we've done with stretching over time. It's just a matter of re-educating people yes. what the importance is. And look, just to finish, Shona, if you could say one thing to people, be it periodization, adaptation, sleep. What mm. what's what's the biggest message that that our clientele, your standard busy working mum mm. or dad, can can take home to to help them perform better. Yeah, my favourite quote, and you may have heard a bang on about this a bit, is never stay up late for something you wouldn't get up early for. Because what we do is we stay up late and late and late and late to, for no reason, Netflix, whatever. Yeah. Um, and so my say to athletes, you know, they're like, oh, I watched three episodes of something. And I'm like, if you wouldn't set your alarm in the morning and get up for that, why would you do it before you go to bed? Because what we do in that period before we go to bed is we just keep creeping into our sleep. It's social media, it's TV, it's, you know, whatever it is, it eats into our sleep time. Um, so never go to, and never stay up late for something that you wouldn't get up early for. That's yeah, my look, number that's one tip. <laughs> fantastic uh, take-home message and, and we'll finish on that note. So, look, again, thanks so much to, um, to have you um, on board Pleasure. for this has been absolutely fantastic. We appreciate your expertise and um, hopefully might get you back on at some time yeah. to talk about ice bars and the rest yeah. of Yeah, no, sounds good. No, thank you. Thanks for the great questions. Always like, you know, chatting to chatting to physios and experienced people with that, you know, that background of knowledge and, you know, always get good, insightful questions. So, yeah, it's been yeah, that's great, great to chat. No worries. Thanks very much, Shona. Awesome. Thanks, Anthony. Cheers. Well, that's it for episode 18, and hopefully it gives us all an amazing insight into the world of recovery and the science behind it. There were so many great points in there from Shona, no doubt enough to get you all thinking not just about what you are using to help your recovery, but also whether you should maybe just sometimes be letting natural recovery occur to ensure that that adaptation and optimal performance gains occur. For me, the take-home messages were the reinforced fact of how important sleep is, and if nothing else, attention to good sleep health is going to be your best recovery tool. Another thing, gadgets and an abundance of information may at times lead us astray and the simple assessment of mood can be one of our best indicators of recovery. And finally, Shona's brilliant take-home message re-sleep. Don't stay up at night if you wouldn't wake up early in the morning for it. Love it. I'm sure there's heaps more points you have all gained, so thanks for listening and we look forward to bringing you the next part to this recovery series where we will actually run through the pros and cons of all the recovery modalities and all the favourite tools that you use. If you haven't already, please get across to the follow button to ensure you get notified as soon as the next recovery edition is released. Thanks for listening. 